Well, I want to welcome everybody here today and those joining us on the stream and on TV. We're so glad that you're a part of the Sagebrush family as well. We are in the middle of a series. Actually, we're concluding the series today called Identity Theft. Where in the world do we get our identity from? And why in the world would we give our identity over to anybody else other than the Lord? We're going to talk about that a little bit today. I was reading this past week. A sociological experiment took place years ago. Sociologists got 10 different people together. They had them individually separated into different rooms. They told them, we're going to put a scar on your face. We're going to get a makeup artist in here, put a hideous scar on your face. Then we're going to send you out into the real world, and we want you to write down your observations on how people treated you differently because of the scar on your face. So they sat there in these little makeup chairs for over an hour getting this hideous scar. They were given a mirror so they could see what the scar looked like. And they told them, they said, don't touch it, don't mess with it, just let the scar be. And then they got ready to send them out to the real world. Well, before they sent them out there, they said, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We, we got some issues here with the scar that we need to fix. So they sat them back down in the makeup chair, and the makeup artist came over and then started working on the, the scar again, and they removed the scar completely from the person's face. But they didn't know that. They thought the scar was still there. Then they sent the 10 individuals on their 10 different ways, and they began to do life thinking they had a scar on their face, when in reality, they didn't have a scar at all. Well, then they came back after a few hours, and they said, well, what was your response? What did you see? What did you experience? And they said, well, well people were very rude to me. And they were rude to me because of the scar that's on my face. I was treated differently than I was ever treated before because of the scar on my face. And some of them were annoyed. They said, I can't believe some people, the audacity of some people, they just stared at me the whole time, staring at the scar on my face. But remember, they didn't have a scar on their face. Some of them said, listen, I was so embarrassed of my scar. I was so ashamed of my scar that I couldn't even look anybody in the eye. I looked down whenever I talked to somebody else. Now remember, friends, they didn't have a scar on their face. They thought they did, but they didn't. So what was the conclusion of the study? Well, if you believe a lie, you'll live like the lie is true. Let me say that again because that was really good. If you believe a lie, you will live as if the lie is really true. And that's what we've been looking at during this little series on identity. We've been looking at four lies. Well, actually, today we're going to talk about the fourth lie that Satan tries to convince us. And listen to me, friends. If you believe the lies about your identity, you will live your life as if those lies are actually true. And you will be the most insecure person trying to impress everybody else rather than listening to the still, small voice of God that says you're made in his image, made by God and for God to have a relationship with him. So let's recap where we've been, and then let's talk about that fourth lie. First off, the first lie that we looked at during this series is the lie that says, I am what others say or think about me. Uh, this is the lie we talked about with social media. Some of us are just consumed with social media. We're consumed with the likes. We're consumed with the shares. We're consumed with the comments. We want to put every post out there, put the best picture we possibly can to get as many likes and shares and follows as we can because every time someone likes it, it makes us feel good, right? 
Because we are absolutely, as a society, consumed with what everybody else says, with what everybody else thinks. And so if the most important people in your life are people that build you up and lift you up, you probably have a pretty good self-esteem. But if the person that you admire the most kind of puts it on you from time to time, says some unkind things to you from time to time, you'll end up being a very insecure person. There was a, a young lady. She was sitting in a worship service. At the end of the worship service, the pastor was in the back, and she walked up over to the pastor, tears in her eyes. She said, Pastor, can I talk to you for a few seconds? Pastor said, well, absolutely. What's going on? She said, well, I've got an issue. He said, what's the issue? She says, I cut myself all the time. The pastor said, would you mind rolling up the sleeves on your shirt so I can see what we're talking about here? And so when the little girl raised up her shirt sleeves, her, her arms were just mangled just by all the scars and all the cuts and the wounds that she had done to herself. The pastor was pretty sharp. He said, let me ask you a question. When, when you get the razor blade out to cut yourself, what's going on in your mind? What are you thinking about? You know what she said? She said, I think about my dad who tells me that I'm a loser who tells me that I'll never amount to anything, that nobody could ever love me, and then I cut myself. I think about my mom, who tells me that I'm fat, and that I'm not pretty, and nobody's ever going to want to be with me for the rest of my life, and then I cut myself. I think about all the people who see me but don't see me. All the people that won't let me into their world, all the people that I could be friends with, but they don't want anything to do with me for one reason or another, and so I cut myself. And she's got this tape, you see. And it runs in her brain over and over and over again, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it makes her feel so bad. It makes her feel so worthless that she wants to hurt herself as a result of it. Here's what's so sad. Many people have a tape. Someone has said something to you. Someone has treated you poorly. Or you have voices in your head that tell you that you're never going to amount to anything. That even God himself could never love you. That God himself could never care for you. And so we play this tape in our minds over and over and over again. No wonder we're so insecure. No wonder we care so much about what everybody else thinks. And if everybody thinks we're great, oh, then everything's wonderful. And everybody thinks we're not great, oh, my goodness, we're depressed and we're sad. As followers of Jesus Christ, at what point in time do you care more about his opinion than the opinion of man that's here today and gone tomorrow? At what point in time do you say, I don't care? I'm not put on this earth to please everybody else. I'm put on this earth to please him. Some of you are exhausted. You're trying to make yourself be something that you're not. You're trying to please this person and this person and do this and do that. Why are you even attempting those things? Jesus couldn't please everybody. And he was the son of God. Why in the world do you think that you're going to somehow pull off something that even Jesus couldn't pull off? At some point in time, the still small voice of God that says that you're chosen by God, adopted by God, that he loves you with a never-ending love, that voice has to start mattering more than the other voices, or you're going to be absolutely miserable. Listen, the apostle Paul was someone who had to deal with the approval of other people. Now, if you know much about Paul's life, you know that he went from town to town to town spreading the message of Jesus Christ. You also know, if you've read the New Testament, that Paul spent a lot of time in prison. 
And why did he spend so much time in prison? Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, they didn't appreciate the fact that the, Paul was teaching that Jesus had died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. So they would have him thrown into jail. Now, let me ask you a question. After you've been thrown into jail, I don't know, two, three, four times for proclaiming that Jesus has risen again from the dead, would you maybe change your technique when you headed into the next city so you didn't end up in the same lot? I mean, wouldn't you be tempted? I think I would be tempted to kind of water down the message. I think I might be tempted to say, now listen, I want to try to say this in a way that you can accept it. I don't want you to get mad. I don't want you to get upset because I really want you to like me. But Paul didn't care. He didn't care about what everybody else thought. He didn't care what anybody else said because he lived his life for an audience of one. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. Look at what he writes. You can see that I'm not trying to please you by sweet talk and flattery. No, I'm trying to please God. If I were still trying to please men, I could not be Christ's servant. And that's the truth, isn't it? You have to make a decision. Who are you living your life for? Who are you wanting to please? At the end of the day, who do you want to hear say, well done, good and faithful servant? And let me tell you something. If it's the voices of everybody else, if it's what everybody else says and everybody else thinks, you're going to end up in a place you never wanted to be. And you're going to become something that you never wanted to become. Look at what the Bible says here, Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I promise you this. Every person who's ever taken a beer and gotten drunk, every person who's ever taken a joint, Every person who's ended up in a place they never wanted to be doing things they never wanted to do, they had somebody else convincing them. They had somebody else that they wanted to impress, somebody else that they wanted to please, and they wanted to fit in, and they cared more about being accepted by that particular group of people than they cared about what God wanted for their life. At some point in time, we got to care more about what he wants than what anybody else wants the one who's got the scars in his hands and in his feet, the one who has the scars upon his forehead, his opinion, his voice, what he says about us is the only thing that matters. That's the first lie that we buy into. Let me give you the second one. We talked about this one last week, and that's the lie that I am who I was. We base our identity on our past, right? We let our past identify ourselves, and we take the worst thing that we've ever done, and we carry that with us everywhere we go. We say things like, well, I guess I'll always be a divorcee. I'll always be a liar. I'll always be an adulterer. I'll always be an addict. I'll always be stupid. I'll always be a failure. And we buy into this stuff. We carry the burden with us everywhere we go. But wait, wait, wait a second. I, I thought when we asked Jesus to come into our life that we became a new creation. Even though the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I thought, well, the old is gone. Your past is gone. The new has come. 
From time to time, I'll watch on TV those restoration shows. You ever see restoration shows where they take an old beat-up piece of furniture or an old beat-up car, and then it gets in the hands of a restorer, and they begin to restore it, and it is better than it was when it was brand new? I love that kind of stuff. This past week, I was on the internet, and I was looking for different pictures of people who had restored different things, things that people wouldn't even pay 50 cents for in a garage sale. In the hands of the restorer became priceless works of art. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Here, here's a barber chair. Look at the before. Does that look like your life before Christ? That looks like my life before Christ. Kind of beat up and rusted out, not of much worth, not as much value, at least in my mind that's the way it was. But then the hands of the restorer took that, and it made everything new again, didn't it? Let me, let me show you another picture, before and after. Look at that piano. Same piano from before and after. In the hands of the restorer. All things, all things can be new again. Let me give you one more. I love cars. Look at that. Ooh, man. Somebody had that in their backyard. They didn't know what in the world they had. I wonder how much money the restorer paid to get that and then to put it in that pristine condition. I like watching those shows. I like seeing those pictures because it's a reminder to me that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. In the hands of the restorer, Everything's new again. You know, we all have a past, don't we? We all have things we're not proud of. We all have things that we wish we could go back in time where we could do it differently than we did it the first time around, don't we? And sometimes we carry that past around with us everywhere we go. Let's go back to the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul had things in his past he wasn't excited about. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. Do you know what he was doing? He was a Pharisee. And he went around and he, and, he, and he captured Christians. He got letters so he could put them in prison, men and women. And he ripped apart families. He was there the day that Stephen was martyred for proclaiming that Jesus had risen again from the dead. The Bible says that he was there giving the approval to Stephen's death. Let me ask you a question. If your past had to do with overseeing the murder of innocent people, you think that might keep you up at night? If your past had to do with throwing people into jail because they proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah and had risen again from the dead, and your job was to separate families, to rip apart husband and wife, mom and dad from their child, would that keep you up at night? Would you carry that burden with you everywhere you went? Would you have a hard time overcoming that which you did to somebody else? This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I forget what's behind. And I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I forget what was behind me. Because it doesn't do me any good today. And I've released that. I've given that over. And the Bible says that he's thrown my sin as far as the east is from the west, that he remembers my sin no more. So either I believe that the blood of Jesus washes away my sin, and behold, I'm a new creation, or I don't. So I can carry that burden with me everywhere I want, everywhere I go, and I can beat myself up. But wait a second, wasn't Jesus beaten for that sin? Didn't Jesus, for six hours one Friday, hang on a cross for my sin and for my shame? 
Paul said, if I'm going to glory in anything, I'm going to glory in the fact that I know Jesus, that he's forgiven me for every foolish thing I've ever done. So I don't remember the past anymore because that's not going to do me any good. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. But a lot of people, they carry their past around. That becomes their identity. Let me give you the third lie. We looked at it last week. Our identity is wrapped up in what we do. I am what I do. I feel sorry for so many people. This is where I'm at. I'm a recovering workaholic, so everything to me was about performance, right? And we learned this as kids. You do well, they applaud you. You do poorly, you're a disappointment. And this is every relationship that you've ever had. So we take this dysfunction and we place it in our relationship with the Lord, don't we? And and so we say things like, well, God's pleased with me when I come to church. As you can see, God's displeased with a lot of people today. God's pleased with me when I read my Bible, but if I don't read my Bible, he's not pleased with me anymore. God's pleased with me when I pray, but if I don't pray, if I haven't talked to God in a while, he's not pleased with me anymore. So what do you have, this up and down relationship with God, and it's all based upon your performance. His love for you is based upon how well you do. No wonder you're not close to him. Who wants to be close to somebody like that? Someone that you have to perform for. Someone you have to earn their love. You do understand that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Listen, God's love is not based upon your consistency. God's love is consistent even when you're not consistent. And yet we live our life according to this lie as well, and it robs us of our true identity. So let me give you the fourth one. You ready? Write it down if you're taking notes. I am what I see in the mirror. Boy, this will destroy you, won't it? We've got a distorted idea of what beauty is in this country. In fact, in the world today. You know that, right? Can I ask you a question? Think about this for just a second. Where did the idea of beauty even come from? Who defined this look or this shape to be beautiful? And this shape and this look to not be beautiful? Who determines what beauty really is? Is it the media? Is it movies? Is it magazine covers? Is it Hollywood that determines what beauty is today? Because I'll be honest with you, I think that's exactly what it is. Ladies, let me talk to you for just a second. Did you know, ladies, over the last three decades in the Miss America pageant, the winner of the pageant for the last 30 years, nutritionists say, was malnourished? Every one of the winners was malnourished. Let me get some pressure off some some ladies today. You ready for this? The average woman in the world today is 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighs 152 pounds. Now, some of you are going to feel pretty good about yourself. Some of you are like, oh, I got a little work to do, I guess, to be average. I don't know. Average model, 5 foot 9 inches tall, 109 pounds. You think that's sustainable? Do you think that's what it means to be beautiful? And and models, they have all these tricks of the trade to cover up their imperfections. They use duct tape. I mean, you're going full bore when you pull out the duct tape. Do you understand what I'm saying? And they rip out duct tape and they'll pull it over here and here a tuck and there a tuck, everywhere a tuck, tuck. You know what I'm saying? That's what they do. Then there's Photoshop. And finally, we live in a generation that actually understands how you can manipulate a picture for years and years and years. Girls were growing up not realizing that those pictures were being manipulated on the front of those magazine covers. 
Got a few hairs going the wrong direction? We'll just Photoshop those right out. You want more size? They can do that without having surgery. You understand what I'm saying? You want a slimmer waistline? You want to get rid of that wrinkle in your dress? You realize that every one of those pictures is an absolute illusion. It's much like anything you see on social media today. Have you checked out Instagram and all the filters that are out there and available to you? Nobody ever puts a picture out without a filter. You see that filter nowadays on Instagram that makes you look like a plastic person? You ever seen that? You have no wrinkles at all. You also have no face. You understand what I'm saying? And here's what's funny. We, we try to show everybody how beautiful we are, how perfect we are by using this filter. And at the bottom of the picture, you can see exactly which filter they used. I mean, how ridiculous is that? That's not who you really are. But we're so insecure, and we're so certain that we're not one of the beautiful people, that we can't even post a picture for our family and friends to see without using a filter. Who defines beauty? Is it the movie stars? Is it the Hollywood? Is it magazines? Can I ask you a question? Why in the world would we give them that kind of power? Why in the world would we give them that kind of power? And we know it's all an illusion. And yet we look in the mirror and we say things like, well, I'm, I'm too fat, right? My, my breasts are too small. My ears are too big. My hair is too curly. I, I have no butt. That's every man alive. You understand that? It's like when God made a man, he went, that's it. We're not doing that right there. I have no abs, they say. I, I have a messy middle. My muscles are so small. I'm a wuss. And this self-criticism starts at a very young age. It's reading a book by Pete Wilson. He mentioned a survey. Kids between the ages of three and six, three years old and six years old, 50% of them said they were fat. Mom and Dad, let me ask you a question. How'd that kid figure out they're fat? Because I'm pretty sure the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Mickey Mouse isn't on there going, you're fat. <laughs> I'm guessing they heard it from you, Mom. Oh, not that they're fat, but you said it to yourself. Over and over and over again. And maybe, Dad, you did the exact same thing. And the thing that's interesting about a three-year-old through a six-year-old is they're absolute sponges. And everything you say, they take to heart. And if Mom and Dad think they're fat, well, guess what? It's just a matter of time before that little three-year-old thinks they're fat, too. The survey went on to say that 33% of kids between the ages of three and six have something about their body that they would like to change. Let me ask you a question. This, this idea of beauty that we've given over to Hollywood and the media and the magazines and all that stuff. Do you think Satan might be behind all that? Because what's the Bible say in John 10.10? 10? It says that Satan, the thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. So why don't you think Satan's behind you? I, I think he wants you to believe that you're not worthy, that you're not beautiful, that no one could ever love you, 
I think he wants to make you as insecure as possible. I think he wants you to look in that mirror and say those terrible things to yourself. I think he wants you to get upset about the, the shape of your nose and the color of your eyes and the curl in your hair. I, th I think he wants you to get mad that you're not stronger than you thought you should be, you know. I, th I think he wants you to be upset over the color of your skin. I think he wants you to focus on the color of somebody else's skin and treat them differently as well. Because we treat beautiful people better than those who aren't considered beautiful, right? But Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he say? He says, you're made in my image. You're not junk. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're the best of the best. Every single one of us, unique, made in the image of God, just the way he wants you to be. And yet we dog it all the time. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes, and said it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Let me explain the context of First Peter. He lived in a pretty pagan culture where women were trying to uh, get men to look at them. So they wanted to flaunt everything they had so they'd get the attention of another man. And the people who did that more than anybody else were the prostitutes of the day. They were the ones braiding their hair. They were the ones wearing fine jewelry. So let's put it in context. What's Peter trying to say to us? He says, ladies, don't dress like a prostitute. Modest is hottest. But, you, but I, mean, I mean, some ladies, they, that's the pressure that they feel. So they'll post something on the internet that's just, Leaves very little to the imagination because they're so insecure. They so much want someone to say that they're pretty. They so much want someone to say that they're beautiful. And God says, listen, you don't need any of that. You're made by me for me. And there are some things that are more important than the outward appearance. You do realize all this outward appearance over time, it either wrinkles or sags. Do you understand what I'm saying right now to you? And God would look at you and say, no, wait a second, that, that's, that's, that's all going to fade away. That's... But what doesn't fade away? A quiet spirit, a humble spirit before God. Do you remember when God was looking for a new king because Saul had blown it? So he sends the prophet Samuel over to Jesse's house and he lines the boys up. And Samuel looks at the oldest, the oldest son and he's very handsome and rugged and muscular and Samuel thinks to himself, well, here's the Lord's anointed. What's he basing it on? Just his outward appearance. And what did God say? He said, I've rejected him. Why did he reject him? Because his heart wasn't devoted to the Lord. He went all the way down the line. There was one more son. Samuel said, these are all your boys. Jesse said, no, there's one more. He's out in the fields. He didn't see anything kingly in him. And he brought him in. And the Lord said to Samuel, there's the one. Man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And we know that. You know that story. I've taught that story. You believe that story to be true. Here's the bummer for us. You ready for this? Even though we know that's true, what do we do? We spend day after day scrolling picture after picture after picture. And we say to ourselves, if I could only look like that. 
And I think God would say, you know, flip through the pages of the Bible, look at the life of Jesus and say, if I could only look like that, then maybe you'd find security. Then you would realize where true beauty actually comes from. There was a successful beauty company, and they had a little contest. And the contest was to, for people to write a letter about what beauty is and to show a picture of the most beautiful people, person that they ever knew. And then if they liked the picture and they liked the letter, they were going to be a part of their, cap, their campaign. And so there was a little boy who ran across this in a magazine. He decided he would write a little letter and send a picture of the person he thought was the most beautiful person on the face of the earth. Kid's about seven, eight years old. Grammatical errors all throughout his little letter. Well, it caught the attention of some of the young executives, and they brought it to the president. This is what the letter said. A beautiful woman lives down the street from me. I visit her every day. She makes me feel like the most important kid in the world. We play checkers, and she listens to my problems. She understands me, and, and when I leave, she always yells out the door that she's proud of me. The boy ended the letter writing, This picture shows you that she's the most beautiful woman. I hope I have a wife as pretty as her one day. Intrigued by the letter, the president said, well, let me see the picture. They handed it to him. It was a woman who was 92 years old. She had no teeth. Gray hair pulled back in a bun. She was overweight. And she was in a wheelchair. You know what the president said? He said, we can't use this. If we use this picture, everyone will know that our products aren't necessary to make someone beautiful. You're a work of art. You're one of a kind. You're made in the image of God, and yet you call yourself junk. And you wish you could change this, or you wish you could change that. And I don't think God would change a thing about you. John Ortberg, in his book, Love Beyond Reason, tells a story about a little doll by the name of Pandy. Pandy was John's sister's doll, and she loved that doll. She took that doll with her everywhere that she went. When she went to bed, Pandy was there laying in bed with her. When it was time for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, Pandy was right there eating whatever she was eating as well. When it was time to take a bath, guess what? Pandy took a bath too. Everywhere that little girl went, Pandy was right by her side. Go outside, they'd play in the dirt. Pandy would be right there playing in the dirt as well. Well, you can imagine over the course of just a few years, Pandy didn't look so good anymore. She had lost an arm and she had lost an eye and she was just as filthy as she could possibly be. But something was different about this doll. This doll had value. Why? Because the love the little girl had... For the doll made it valuable. John said, one day we were in Canada. We were on a vacation. And we left the hotel in a rush. And we thought, well, the dad thought that the mom had Pandy. And the mom thought the dad had Pandy. And neither one of them had Pandy. And they got about five, six hours heading back to Illinois. And they realized they left that doll back at the hotel. Well, the dad, being a pragmatist, he thought, I'll just make a phone call to the hotel. And they can just ship the doll back to us. So he calls the hotel and said, yeah, we found your doll and we were cleaning your room. We've got it right here if you want to come get it. So he turned to his wife and said, well, they're not going to mail it. Should we turn around and go get it? And of course, at this point in time, the little girl realized that Pandy was gone and she was just beside herself. So John said they turned the car around, went six hours back to Canada, <laughs> got that doll. He said, we were a devoted family. 
Not a very smart family, but we were a devoted family. What, what made Pandy special? What made her valuable? It was the love the little girl had for the doll. Here's what I want you to get. We are God's rag dolls. And no doubt, we have been beat up along the way, haven't we? We have allowed the opinion of other people to get the very best of us, and we care more what other people think than anybody else thinks, and we've gotten somewhat dirty along the way, haven't we? And then we live according to our past, and our past isn't very spectacular, is it? And we carry that burden with us everywhere we go, and we just get a little bit dirtier. Then we think, well, the only way to earn love is to please other people. And so we work for the love, and we try to earn the love by making good decisions because the only way you really get to be loved is by the way you know you perform. And it just messes our soul up just a little bit more. And finally, we look in the mirror and we say, well, I don't like what I see. don't like the person that I've become. I wish this was different about me or that was different about me. And we just end up a big mess, don't we? Who in the world could love a doll like this? Oh, I know someone who can. His name is Jesus. And he loves you with a never-ending love. And I just wish that somehow, some way, you would let the roots of your soul go down deep in the love of God. Though it's so high and so wide and so deep and so long that you'll never be able to fathom it. May you be transformed by the love of God. Or keep living your life according to these four lies. Keep living your life based upon what everybody else says and everybody else thinks and change with every moment that you can just so you can be accepted by a bunch of people that won't even be in your life in five years. Carry around the burden of your past. Tell yourself that you're useless, that you're so far gone that even God couldn't forgive you and you will be an absolute miserable mess. Perform. Work hard. But my goodness, you'll never know if you reach the goal. You'll never know if you reach the pinnacle. Because in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, you know you just got to press on a little bit harder to the next mountaintop. And look in that mirror and compare yourself with everybody you see on social media with all their filters and tell yourself that you don't measure up. And you'll be the most miserable person on the face of the earth. Or you can listen to the still, small voice of God who made you and knit you together in your mother's womb, who whispers in your ear, you are not junk. How valuable are you? You're so valuable that God sent his son to die for you. What was the price for your redemption? What was the price to save your soul? It was the price of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You know what makes you valuable? It's not making your name great. It's making his name great. You know what makes you valuable? It's the fact that he knows your name. It's the fact that he knows the number of hairs upon your head, that his thoughts of you outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. That's what makes a person valuable. So what are you going to live for? 
Listen, you can believe the lies and live as if those lies are true. Or you can start listening to the truth of God's word and live confidently and live your life for an audience of one. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're rag dolls, but we're your rag dolls. We're beat up. I mean, we're a literal mess. We have chased after the wind, looking for identity and significance in all the things that will never satisfy us. And we're miserable as a result. Every day, we're putting ourselves down. Every day, we've got voices in our head that tell us that we're not worthy of anything. We've got to stop it. We've got to take those thoughts and capture them and make them obedient to you. We're made by you, for you. You have a plan and a purpose for our life. We are your workmanship. And you say that we're chosen by you, that we're adopted to be in your family, and that your love for us is not based upon our performance, that you are consistent even when we're not. May those words mean more to us than any other words we've ever heard. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.